I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Once again, welcome back to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Um, In this episode, I'm actually going to take the time to walk through some vocabulary terms um, as it relates to presuppositional apologetics. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback from uh, the two debates that I've posted on the podcast, uh, one against the uh, YouTube atheist Soros the Skeptic and another um, against the YouTube atheist Negation of P. And so if you haven't checked those out yet, um, you should uh, download those episodes and you can listen to the entire debate there. I have been getting some emails. Um, people are asking, you know, hey, you know, that was, that was a great debate, but you use a lot of words that I'm not really familiar with. And so in this episode, I want to focus on some apologetics, well, presuppositional apologetics vocabulary. And so um, what I'm going to do for you here is I have a wonderful book by Greg Bonson called Pushing the Antithesis. And if you don't have that book, you need to get your hands on it. It outlines wonderfully and very easily the presuppositional method. Okay? It's very the temptation is to be turned off by the title of the book, Pushing the Antithesis, right? It kind of sounds pretty technical, but it's actually a very introductory um, level book that kind of highlights all of the main features of a presuppositional method, um, and it brings it down to a very understandable, um, an understandable way, okay? So in this episode, I'm actually going to uh, read through some of the glossary of terms. And so you could, um, and maybe I might comment on some of them, so you can get a gist of some of the important vocabulary when um, talking about the presuppositional method. And in the book, uh, Pushing the Antithesis, there are study questions. And in the back of the book, there are answers to the questions. And so within the next couple of episodes, I'm actually going to read through the question and answer section so you can see Um, how some of the terminology applies in real uh, conversation and, you know, 
we'll go through that uh, so as to help folks um, understand how the method works and how it's applied to different areas. All right. So uh, let's begin with our first word, which is uh, something we should be familiar with if you're if you're learning apologetics. But here's uh, here's a definition of apologetics according to the book Pushing the Antithesis. Right? And this is very much reflective of Cornelius Van Til's uh, usage of these words. If you don't know who Cornelius Van Til is, um, you need to uh, get your hands on some of his books. Of course, he is uh, considered the father of presuppositional apologetics, um, and Greg Bonson being one of his, uh, his prized students, among many others, right? All right. So apologetics. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. The word apologetics derives from the combination of two Greek words, apo, that's A-P-O, meaning back or from, and logos, meaning word, meaning to give a word back or to respond, i.e. to make a defense. Okay, so that's kind of a basic Vantillian definition uh, of uh, apologetics. Sometimes people will define apologetics in much more simpler terms to make a defense, right? That's, that's adequate, all right? Within presuppositional lingo, you'll also hear the word antithesis, antithesis. And of course, the, uh, the definitions that I'm giving you are coming from a book called Pushing the Antithesis. And in presuppositional thought, Pushing the antithesis is vitally, vitally important. And so here's what this word means, antithesis. Antithesis is based on two Greek words, anti, against, and tethenai, or to place or set, or I'm sorry, to set or place, okay? Antithesis speaks of opposition or a counterpoint. As Christians, we must recognize the fundamental disagreement between biblical thought and all forms of unbelief at the foundational level of our theory of knowing and knowledge, okay? Within presuppositional apologetics, we want to recognize the diametric opposition of the Christian worldview to all unbelieving thought. And we want to highlight those differences and press on those differences because we believe as Christians that the Christian worldview provides a coherent foundation for knowledge intelligibility and that the non-christian perspective does not and so we do not want the unbeliever to borrow from our coherent worldview so as to try to save their incoherent worldview and so within our discussion within our worldview comparison we want to push the antithesis we want to highlight the vast differences to show that you can't have knowledge and intelligibility without a christian foundation and unbeliever you are not allowed to borrow from the Christian worldview. If you want to ground knowledge, intelligibility, the uniformity of nature, and all those other things, you're going to have to do it on your own principle, okay? So we want to push the antithesis, right? As Christians, we must recognize the fundamental disagreement between biblical thought and all forms of unbelief at the foundational level of our theory of knowing and knowledge, okay? Another important term uh, is autonomy, Autonomy. Autonomy derives from two Greek words, auto, meaning self, and namos, meaning law. It effectively means self-law or self-rule. Human autonomy asserts that man's reasoning is the ultimate criterion of knowledge. 
Okay, and oftentimes uh, people will hear me say something to the effect I, that I do not believe in autonomous reasoning. I do not believe man is a law unto himself, and I do not I do not believe that man can reason independently of God and actually come to knowledge and intelligibility. If people do reason independent of God, they do not come to knowledge and intelligibility without already borrowing from a worldview in which God has created uh, reason itself um, and man's capacities and things like that. So as a Christian, we do not desire to reason autonomously. Rather, we reason within the context of the broader Christian worldview, which includes a rational universe created by a rational God and whose image we were created. All right. Another important uh, uh, term or phrase here is the logical fallacy known as begging the question. Begging the question. Okay? Begging the question, technically known by the Latin phrase petitio principi, is a fallacious manner of reasoning, wherein your premise includes the claim that your conclusion is true. That is, your argument assumes the very point to be proven. Okay? And begging the question is often, uh, and it is a logical fallacy. However, it is a popular critique of presuppositional apologetics since the presuppositionalist unashamedly says that we start with the God of Christianity and uh, he is our unquestionable starting point. And if you don't start with him, uh, you don't have a foundation for anything. Now, when we assume the thing we're trying to prove in normal everyday reasoning, that is fallacious. However, when you're dealing with ultimate authorities, we must, we must assume the thing we're trying to prove when you're dealing with ultimate foundations, okay? If your ultimate foundation is sense experience, you must assume the validity of your sense experience to prove the reliability of sense experience. If reason is your ultimate foundation, you need to assume the um, validity of your reasoning in order to demonstrate that your reasoning is valid. That's circular, right? But I don't think it's always fallaciously circular if you're dealing with ultimate foundations. However, not all ultimate foundations on their own provide the preconditions of intelligibility. So just because we start with ultimate, quote, self-attesting starting points, that doesn't mean all self-attesting starting points are all on equal footing. We would argue that when we start with the God of the Bible and the worldview system, that is derived from his revelation, we start with an ultimate authority that's self-attestingly true, and that ultimate authority provides the preconditions for intelligible experience, the preconditions for knowledge, okay? So beg, uh, circular reasoning, begging the question, is fallacious, but when you're dealing with ultimate authorities, uh, we need to start with some self-attesting foundation. If you don't start with a foundation, then you can never justify any particular thing since if I were to ask you, why do you believe A, you give me a reason B. Well, then why do you believe B? Well, you give me reason C. Well, why do you believe C? And then you see, without a stopping point, you will never justify A because the justification goes ad infinitum, right? So you either have an infinite regress of reasons why you believe something, and therefore you don't justify the specific original thing you were trying to, to establish, or you have a stopping point that can provide a, a adequate foundation for why you believe something to be true. All right? All right. Um, let's go to our next term here. Uh, this is a, an important term within um, uh, philosophy, right? Brute facts. Brute facts. 
A brute fact is an uninterpreted fact that stands alone without reference to some other fact, principle of interpretation, and especially to God. Presuppositional apologetics denies brute factuality in all in that all facts are created and controlled by God according to his plan and for his glory. Cornelius Van Til said uh, that a brute fact is a mute fact. A brute fact is a mute fact. Facts don't speak for themselves. Facts must be interpreted in light of a worldview context in which they make sense. Okay, As Christians, we do not believe that there are uh, neutral, uninterpreted facts, since we believe that God created all things, and everything created is interpreted in light of how God, uh, why God has made those things and how he's defined those things. All right, So brute facts, very, very important. Of course, we have circular reasoning. Circular reasoning, technically known by the Latin phrase circulus in probando, which occurs when one assumes something in order to prove that very thing. Circular reasoning is often very subtle and hard to detect. Okay, That's very similar to begging the question, right? We said something that uh, begging the question is a manner of reasoning wherein your premise includes the claim that your conclusion is true. That is, your argument assumes the very point to be proven. And circular reasoning is when one assumes something in order uh, to prove that very thing. Okay, so they're very; those are very, very similar. All right. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> what other words do I use that might be confusing to people? Ah, uh, yes. There's there's often mention of the economic trinity, and this is uh, in comparison to the ontological trinity. Again, these are two. Um, theological terms that are important to recognize. As Christians, we believe in the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Okay, and so let me make a distinction between uh, these two uh, words. Okay, all right, so the economic trinity. The economic trinity looks at the trinity in terms of the scheme of salvation, the plan of redemption. The Father elects us and, and sends the Son. The Son becomes incarnate and dies for us. The Spirit calls and sanctifies us. The notion of the economic trinity focuses on the roles of each member of the trinity. Neither the Father nor the Spirit died on the cross, only the Son. And so the economic trinity deals with how their roles are, how their functions are. The Father works in this way. The Son works in that way. The Spirit works in that way. We are looking at the economy of the three persons. That is different than the ontological trinity. When we deal with ontology, we deal with the nature of being. And so when we're speaking of the ontological trinity, we're speaking of the nature of the triune God. So the ontological trinity deals with the nature of the triune God, and the economic trinity deals with how the three persons within the Godhead function. Okay? Very, very important. Okay. What do we mean when we refer to something empirical? Right? When we, t when we speak about, uh, when I'm critiquing, for example, uh, presuppositionally, any empirical epistemology or theory of knowledge. Empirical, something that's empirical, refers to knowledge that is observational, relying on sense perception. It is guided by experience rather than theory or, uh, you know, conceptual rational uh, rationalization, okay? So something that's empirical, that deals with the sensation, observation, right? The empirical sciences, if you will, okay? And uh, this is important because if someone's theory of knowledge is purely empirical, namely all knowledge comes through sensation and experience, uh, then there's a critique of that. Okay, Christians are not 
empiricist in the sense that we affirm all knowledge is all knowledge comes through observation and sense experience. Okay? For if all knowledge comes through observation and sense experience, which observation and sense experience did the person use to come to the knowledge that all knowledge is based on observation and sense perception, right? What observation and sense perception did we observe and perceive that gave us the limits of knowledge itself? Well, of course, no one could sense that. No one could observe that. And so it is uh, self-referentially false. Okay, so uh, let's see again. That has some apologetic implications. Okay, now this is a very important term. Van Til often used it um, when we defined epistemology. Right? If you listen to one of my past podcasts, I, I went over three foundations of every worldview: metaphysics. Every worldview has a metaphysic. It asks the question, "What is the nature of reality?" Every worldview has an epistemology. And every worldview is an ethic. Let me define epistemology, and then I'm going to define for you an important phrase related to epistemology. Okay, Epistemology is based on two Greek words, episteme, knowledge, and logos, word or discourse. It is the study of the nature and limits of human knowledge. It addresses questions about truth, belief, justification, etc. It investigates the origin, nature, methods, and limits of knowledge, discovering what we know and how we come to know it. So epistemology is basically that aspect of our worldview that asks the question, how do we know what we know? How is knowledge gained? Okay. Now, this is an abstract kind of concept, and a lot of people don't, uh, you know, in everyday affairs, don't think about how we come to know what we know, right? Van Til taught us that we need to learn to be epistemologically self-conscious, okay? We need to be epistemologically self-conscious. That's a mouthful, but it is very, very important. Basically, we want to, as Christians, be aware of our epistemology. We want to be self-conscious of our theory of knowledge, okay? Epistemological self-consciousness. One who is epistemologically self-conscious engages life in a way that fully comports with his theory of knowledge. That is, his behavior and reasoning are perfectly consistent with his basic commitments regarding the world and knowledge. We want to be aware of our theory of knowledge, and we want to bring out the unbeliever's theory of knowledge. Hopefully, within an apologetics context, we can use what they say about the nature of knowledge and how it's gained to show that given their own principles— you know, they don't have the foundation for that, okay? Now, I'm not going to go into details, but that's the term, and that's kind of the context in which it's uh, discussed within presuppositional, um, within presuppositional lines, all right? Okay, ethics, right? Remember I said the three foundations of every worldview, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Ethics is the branch of philosophy known as moral philosophy. It studies right and wrong attitudes, judgments, and actions, as well as moral responsibility and obligation. All right. Um, another important theological term is something known as general revelation, as different than special revelation. General revelation is the doctrine that God reveals himself in nature. This form of revelation is directed to all men, thus it is called general revelation. Though God's revelation in nature does not show man the way of salvation, the Trinitarian nature of God and many other such divine truths, it does show that God exists, that he is powerful, and that man is responsible to him. 
right? General, revela general revelation is the way in which God reveals himself to all men, such that they are without excuse. That's referenced in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and on. Okay? Um, let's see here. Okay, metaphysics. Metaphysics is derived from the Latin word metaphysica, which is based on the compound of two Greek words, meta, which means after or beyond, and physica, physics and nature. It literally means beyond the physical, that is, beyond the physical world of sense perception. It is the study of the ultimate nature of reality, the origin, structure, and nature of what is real. Okay? Monism. Monism is derived from the Greek word mono, single, and monism is a metaphysical system, right? A me remember what metaphysics is. It is a system of reality, a theory of, of reality, um, asserting that only one ultimate substance or principle in the universe, um, basically the fundamental essence of reality is a kind of oneness, right? And this is the uh, kind of a monistic principle of the universe. Monism denies multiplicity of things holding that those many things we deem real are simply phases of a one and are somehow illusions, okay? So if the fundamental aspect of reality is one, then there are no distinctions, okay? This is important because if you hold to a monistic worldview and you say that reality is ultimately one, then the distinctive things that we experience in reality are illusory. They're not really distinctive from one another because if they are, then all is not one. Okay, and so that's a particular metaphysical outlook, right? A particular theory of knowledge, which philosophically has problems, right? Which we won't get into now, but that's what monism is. All right, let's see here the ontological trinity. Let's move along. Pragmatism, pragmatism. This uh, might be familiar to folks who uh, listened to my debate with Suris the skeptic. He identified himself as an atheist and a pragmatist. And pragmatism is the following. The philosophical system, which holds that the meaning of an idea or proposition lies in its observable practical consequences. Pragmatists argue that we live to solve our problems, even though we do not need to theoretically account for explanations. We must be able to adapt to the environment, solve our problems, and get ahead in life. Pragmatism shuns the traditional problems of philosophy. We do not need certainty, but utility. Okay? And, um, well, if you listen to the debate uh, between myself and Sirs the Skeptic, hopefully you'll be able to see the problems with pragmatism as an epistemological um, perspective. Okay? What is a presupposition? A presupposition. Well, we're doing a presuppositional apologetics. It's helpful to know what a presupposition is. So a presupposition is defined as an elementary or foundational assumption in one's reasoning or in the process by which opinions are formed. It is not just any assumption in an argument, but a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of beliefs. Presuppositions form a wide-ranging foundational perspective or starting point in terms of which everything else is interpreted and evaluated. As such, presuppositions have the greatest authority in one's thinking being treated as one's least negotiable beliefs and being granted the highest immunity to revision. Okay? Presuppositions sound very much like axioms or unjustified assumptions are ultimate starting points. We have to make a distinction, though, that presuppositions, while it's defined thusly within a presuppositional framework, the presupposition that God exists, I would not say is the same as a run-of-the-mill presupposition 
because we believe that, uh, you know, unlike an axiom that is an un, by definition, it's unjustifiable. You don't justify an axiom because you cannot appeal to something more foundational than the axiom. But when you have a presupposition that is transcendentally demonstrated, then the presupposition that is transcendentally demonstrated is demonstrated and justified not by appealing to something external to itself that's more foundational, but by referring to its own transcendental necessity. So a transcendental presupposition is justified in reference to itself, highlighting the fact that to deny it, knowledge would be impossible, right? The very fact that we deny it assumes it. Okay, so uh, that is a key difference between, say, when we're doing presuppositional apologetics and we say that God is our ultimate presupposition. That's different than just saying God is our axiom. All right. Now, if those who are interested in pursuing the difference between those, you might want to look into a comparison between Cornelius Van Til, a presuppositionalist, and Gordon Clark, who was another presuppositionalist of a different flavor. Now, folks who are familiar with these kinds of discussions will find that um, that comparison very, very helpful. All right, let's see here. <laughs> special revelation. Special revelation is that disclosure that is given to God's people. Hence, it is special. It comes from God by means of direct, personal, verbal, or visual communication, either through special, prophetically endowed messengers or through the written record of those messengers, right? An example of special revelation would be the Bible, okay? All right. Transcendental reasoning. When I refer to transcendentals, what do I mean by that? Now, this term has been confusing for a lot of people, and uh, these are this is the term really people saying, hey, that was a great discussion you had, but what do you mean by, right, transcendental? So, transcendental reasoning seeks to discover what general conditions must be fulfilled for any particular instance of knowledge to be possible. It asks what view of man, mind, truth, Language and the world is necessarily presupposed by our conception of knowledge and our methods of pursuing it. Basically, transcendental reasoning asks what must be the case in order for something else to be the case, right? What must be the case for me to be talking to you right now? Well, I must exist. I can't be talking to you right now if I don't exist. So the preconditions for this podcast is that I can I exist, right? Um, so when we are reasoning transcendentally, we're asking what are the preconditions. Within the context of presuppositional apologetics, we're asking what are the preconditions for intelligible experience and knowledge. We argue, of course, that the preconditions is that the, um, the worldview of uh, the Christian worldview is true. The world is the way that God has revealed it, and that's why we can engage in all the things that we do so with reasoning, you know, utilization of logic and foundation for morals and all these sorts of things. Okay. And what is a worldview? What is a worldview? A worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not verified by the procedures of natural science regarding reality, knowing, and conduct, in terms of which every element of human experience is related and interpreted. I'll read that again. A worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not verified by the procedures of natural science regarding reality, metaphysics, knowing, epistemology, and conduct, ethics, in terms of which every element of human experience is related and interpreted. Basically, a worldview is a view of the world. It is an intellectual lens through which we interpret all of human experience. Okay? And so depending on your worldview, that's going to affect how you interpret specific things in human 
experience. All right, well, that is all for our presuppositional, philosophical, theological vocabulary run-through. I hope uh, folks find this helpful. If you uh, have any questions, of course, uh, feel free to reach out to me. So that's it for today's episode. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.